0: Welcome to Virginia Outdoor Adventures podcast. We bring outdoor adventure stories and recommendations from athletes, conservationists, authors, park guides, community leaders, and local business owners from across the Commonwealth. I'm your host, Jessica Bowser. Today's episode comes with a warning, you may get hooked. Birding has recently surged in popularity as people crave safe engagement with nature. Matt Felperin, Nova Park's roving naturalist, describes the adventure in birding, including exploring habitats, discovering new species, chasing rarities, and simply finding joy and respite in birds. Matt also discusses an increasing diversity in the hobby, conservation, community science, and how to get started identifying the birds in your backyard. And yes, we also talk about Virginia's very rare and super adorable avian celebrity from Greenland that has everyone in a frenzy. Let's go. Okay, you ready to bird nerd out? Let's do it. (laughs) Awesome. Matt, welcome to Virginia Outdoor Adventures.
1: Thanks, Jessica. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Normally I start my interviews by asking my guests what they love about the Virginia outdoors. But since we are talking about birds today, I'm going to change it up a little bit. And instead I'm going to ask you what your spark bird is. And before you answer the question, could you explain what a spark bird is?
1: Sure. All right. So um, many of us birders uh, use the term spark bird for a bird that really got us going into the hobby of birding. And so my spark bird, I consider the osprey, and while it's a very common bird, um, I've been fortunate enough to have hands-on um, research, fieldwork um, experience with the osprey, and I've been able to see them up close at all ages of life, um, starting as an egg into a one-day-old, two-day-old chick into a full adult osprey. Um, one as old as 19 years old. So I just know that bird so well, and I've had so much experience with that bird, um, and really respect it. So that would be what I would consider my spark bird. I do have one more, if you don't mind me throwing another one in there. Go
0: for it. Yeah.
1: All right. So what really got me started into birding as a whole though, would be the prothonotary warbler. That's definitely a mouthful. (laughs) This is a bright yellow tropical bird that spends its winters, um, further south uh, outside of this country, Um, some of them overwinter in Florida, uh, but they're only up here uh, during breeding season. And they are really, really striking birds. So when I first laid my eyes on one of those, I knew that this was going to be something I was getting into.
0: That's really neat. When you first said Osprey, I thought, well, that's very different than my spark (laughs) bird, but prothonotary warbler is a little bit closer. My spark bird is very small. And the way I got into birding was um, I had just, I had stumbled across a birding app on my phone and I started playing with it and it kind of sparked my interest. And I decided to go out one day and see what I could find just in my own backyard. And I didn't own binos, but I did have a camera with a little bit of a zoom lens. And it was December and the ground was frozen and I went out expecting to see blue jays and robins and cardinals and geese and all the things that you typically see. And I did see those, but then I came across this area where the ground was covered in ice and I saw something really small hopping around on the ice, but I couldn't get a good look at it. And so I managed to get some photos and when I got home and uploaded them onto my computer onto a large monitor where I could zoom in, I saw this teeny tiny gray bird with a really bright yellow stripe on its head. And so I used the app that I had just found to identify the bird and realize that it was a golden crowned kinglet. And it was a female because as you know, the male golden crowned kinglets have a bright orange stripe on their head and the, the females have the yellow stripe on the crown. And it was at that moment that I was completely hooked because I had never seen this bird before. I'd never even heard of this bird before. And yet I'm reading this information telling me that the bird, it lives here and is always here. And I'm thinking to myself, how is it that I'm outside all the time and I've never seen this? And so then my next thought was, well, what else is out here that I've never seen? And next thing I know, I'm spending every moment that I have with my camera, trying to find all kinds of new things and taking pictures of everything that moved and identifying everything. And um it becomes very addicting it's almost like a scavenger hunt where you're constantly looking for the next thing and and what's out there that you've never seen before so that was my spark bird
1: (laughs) i think you pretty much wrapped that up with a bow that was a perfect description of how many of us got started and it's a never-ending quest it really can it can never end no person on the entire world has seen every bird species that's right it's so you can just keep going Uh, And how
0: many are there in North America? Isn't it upwards of 800?
1: It's close to 800. I don't know the exact number on there. We can throw that there in the notes. But typically anyone who's having a big year, and these are uh, birders in North America specifically that are trying to see as many birds as they can, as many different species within one year, they pretty much max out around 750.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually but, if it gets higher than that, it's because there is a species that shows up unexpectedly, right?
1: Right. Now, I'm not sure if they're only counting ABA birds or not, because I am i haven't done a big year yet, so I don't know all that information. But yeah, um, any, any birds higher than that would probably be rare vagrants from out of range.
0: Right. And ABA stands for American Birding Association, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Um, but most birders keep a life list which is a list of species they've seen right
1: yeah if you use ebird and there are other ways to keep track of the birds you've seen but ebird when you when you upload lists of places you've been and what birds you've seen and what specific date it will actually organize all of this data for you so you can see you know how many different species have you seen all time, how many different species have you seen this month, this year, or where? It could, it could be county, state, or country, or world. So it does a great job of breaking all that down for you so you can see all the different species you've seen. And then also individuals, you can see, well, all right, I've seen 3,800 chickadees or something like that. So it's it's, it's a really good uh, resource to use.
0: We talked a little bit about how you got into birding, but let's talk about your job and your title. You're a naturalist for Nova Parks. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So I'm the Nova Parks roving naturalist. And uh, basically what that is, is I am a environmental educator and recreator uh, that leads environmental education and, and recreation programs, such as kayaking, hiking, bird walks and counts and um, astronomy programs, owl hikes, it's almost limitless um, throughout the Northern Virginia Regional Park Authority, aka Nova Parks. And so that covers Loudoun County, Fairfax County, Arlington County, Alexandria, and Falls Church.
0: Wow, that sounds like the funnest job in the world.
1: It's pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs)
0: birding seems to be a really timely topic right now birding has just exploded as a hobby as a result of the current pandemic you and i were outdoors one day looking for a way to get out and just sort of met each other while we were out birding do you want to talk about how we met
1: sure yeah so um I'll mention that Huntley Meadows Park is is one of my favorite local parks to go birding and for bird photography because of the access you get to that marshy kind of beaver pond habitat there. Um, There's a boardwalk that'll take you out there and you can get in the presence of birds that may be difficult to see from land or almost impossible. And so one of those birds that we were both looking for that day is called a sora. And soras are secretive marsh birds that migrate through here in the spring and fall. Sometimes they'll stay longer in the fall. And uh, we were both on the lookout for this bird at Huntley Meadows and obviously got into conversation. and, And here we are.
0: I'd been there the week before looking for the clapper rail, which has created quite a frenzy. (laughs) In fact, when I was there the week before looking for the clapper rail, I was there with what felt like a circus of birders who are all standing on the boardwalk, you know, quietly sneaking around, whispering, looking into the bushes. Everybody is trying to find this clapper rail, uh, which was really neat. And then I came back looking for the Sora because I'd been there the day before, and a friend of mine um, who's probably one of the best birders I know know happened to show up and he told me where to find it because he had seen it there before and so I went straight to that spot I found it kind of quickly but it disappeared and I was hoping to get a photo of it so I was waiting and while I'm waiting I look over and I see all these other people including you taking pictures of something and I thought huh I wonder what they've got over there and so I just wandered over and what was it that you all were looking at
1: And uh, so this bird is expected at places like Huntley Meadows, but it's really hard to see clearly and get photographs of it's called a Wilson's snipe. And it is a sandpiper, um, but it's not typically found on beaches. This is again, a a marsh bird, um, pretty commonly found in freshwater tidal marshes in the, in the winter and just freshwater marshes in the winter. Uh, But, Typically, they're really hard to see. First of all, they have incredible camouflage, and they usually take cover in the, in the grasses. Um, but you really need to have close access to be able to see one. And I've never seen one in Huntley Meadows, and I go there pretty often. So to get one in the open foraging constantly, mere feet from us, uh, was a real treat. Um, and it does look like a, there's a similar bird that looks just like it called a woodcock. It's, and that's the, that is the bird that people refer to. with the, There's like an old uh, tale called a, you know, going for a snipe hunt where it's really you're taking someone out to the woods and tricking them into finding the snipe. And so that's actually the bird that's referred to in the snipe hunt, um, the American woodcock. And again, another really, really excellent camouflage. Both of these birds have a really interesting behavior where they, they rock their body back and forth. And from what I understand, this is actually to, they have very sensitive um, bills and they're able to kind of detect vibrations in the, in the ground. And so they're, I believe they're rocking their feet back and forth to kind of move around whatever invertebrates they're trying to get at. Um, And then again, their bill will pick up those vibrations. So really, really interesting birds for sure.
0: That's neat. I don't know what the reason is for the way they rock back and forth, but they are so funny looking when they do that I just can't stand it. It's so cute. They have that really long bill and they're sort of round, pudgy looking birds. And then there there they are doing this little dance in the mud.
1: I'd love for the listeners to look this up. Look up Woodcock Walking and then maybe throw in chicks in there as well on something like YouTube. Because mm-hmm. when the chicks are behind the parent and they're all kind of doing it, it looks like a dance. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's hilarious. So if you've got a second, you want to look that up because <laughs> there's no way you can't crack a smile after after seeing that.
0: They are so cute. And like you said, they are common there, but they're very difficult to see. Now, unlike the clapper rail, which is difficult to see anyway, but is not usually found in Huntley Meadows.
1: Right. So the clapper rail is a big deal because that is almost strictly a saltwater marsh bird. And if you go out to the coastal marshes of Delaware and Maryland, it would be an easy bird to find, especially during breeding season. Um, But interior inland like this, uh, nowhere near any sort of saltwater tidal marsh, uh, clapper rail is very rare. And so it is really awesome that we have one at Huntley.
0: You and I were out on the boardwalk. We end up taking pictures of this Wilson snipe. And you and I are both, you know, faces in the back of our cameras. And without even turning around, you said to me, have you seen the clapper rail yet? And I said, yeah, I saw it last week. I'm here looking for a Sora. And then immediately we started talking birds. And for the next several hours after that, you and I were teaming up looking for these birds together.
1: Yeah, that was a really, really fun day. And it's always nice to have some company Um, and the extra set of eyes also helps for sure.
0: It does. And I think that's part of the reason why birding has really surged during this pandemic. I mean, first of all, it's a great way to get outside um, in a a safe place. Of course, you still need to wear a mask. Masks are required right now at Huntley Meadows because when you're on the boardwalk, you do come within six feet of other people. Uh, But you keep your mask on, you keep your distance as best you can, but you can be outside in a safe space with another person enjoying the outdoors, doing in activities. And also it's stress relieving, right? I mean, it's it's a peaceful way to be in the outside and, and enjoy nature.
1: Being outside is, is really important for our, for our mental and physical health. It really is for everybody. There's always some, some space to go and and take in the outdoors and to see a bunch of cool birds, even, even in, in close to downtown DC. Um, So it's, it's a great way to just get out and see something new. And again, Because birds fly, you never know what you're gonna get. Even if you're somewhere where you don't expect a great diversity of species, something cool could show up there, you never know.
0: Well, speaking of something cool showing up, (laughs) there's another celebrity bird that has shown up in DC recently, the barnacle goose, which everybody's losing their minds over, (laughs) including me, because he's absolutely (laughs) adorable. Explain why this barnacle goose is such a big deal.
1: The the barnacle goose that's in D.C. has been hanging out with a bunch of Canada geese, so if you do feel like going out and looking for it, um, anywhere along the Potomac River, close to the FDR Memorial and Haynes Point, would be good places to look. And you're just going to look around through the rafts of Canada geese, and you'll find, and hopefully, you'll find a smaller version that looks almost like a Canada goose, and they are they are somewhat related. Um, but they're they're more of a silver color and they have striking black and white faces it's just absolutely beautiful little bird here and i say little as in it's smaller than a can of goose, but it's still a fairly large bird it's a great bird for beginners to go out to look for and find because again it's it's um, pretty big and it's out in the open but this specific species is a big deal because they they have a very small range and it's all in europe so Um, The farthest west that this bird breeds is eastern Greenland, um, and then the Baltic states and um, like Arctic Circle, Russia, is where this bird breeds. And even in Europe, they really don't travel too far. So there's a lot of migratory birds that breed in the Arctic, but will fly thousands of miles south for the winter. This bird doesn't fly too far south. Again, the Baltic states and then um, specifically the population that breeds in eastern Greenland, which is likely the source of this bird, um, they winter in like England and Scotland. But occasionally you will get a couple that wander their way west. Typically, it'll be in northeastern Canada. You'd expect to see a couple up there every winter. Um, or in the northeastern united states specifically but to get one down in dc this is a big deal there's actually never been one reported before this one and there's a lot of birders in this area so um, while it's possible that the bird has been here before it has not been recorded Uh, so it has definitely caused quite the stir among local birders and other people who are um just getting into it, they may have stopped by and asked what people are all looking at with big expensive cameras and and uh, scopes, and then they'll point out this goose. And and so even people who have never really thought about getting into birding have been able to stumble across this this bird by seeing all these birders out. So it's been really awesome.
0: I went down myself to look for it just last weekend, and um, I was in Arlington, and I was sort of walking the shoreline and scanning all of the flocks of Canada geese that I saw out in the water, and I came across this couple. They were in their early 20s, and they had driven here from Columbus, Ohio that morning just to find the bird and had no way of spending the night, so they were going to turn around and drive back, and so their only hope um, to see the bird had to be that day. But they actually drove that far. I mean, they got in their car like crazy early in the morning and got on the road just so that they could see the barnacle
1: goose. And that should really resonate with people with how big of a deal this is. If you've got people driving here from Columbus, Ohio, for one bird, not even necessarily sure they're going to find it, it should show you, A, burgers are crazy, and B, that this is a big deal. <laughs>
0: But that's kind of the fun of birding is you never know what you're going to find. And even when something like this pops up, there might be a good chance that you'll find it if people are sharing information and telling other people where it was last seen or what direction they saw it move in. There's a possibility of seeing it, but there's never a guarantee in nature. You never know what's going to happen. And so when you go out looking for a specific bird, you may or may not find it.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely not a guarantee. These birds will not wait for you or pose for you. You've got to put in the work. But again, like you said, there's there's luckily a vast amount of resources for people to be able to utilize to, to get more information on how to, to see that bird. And so that's what a lot of people were doing with the barnacle goose. Things were either posted on Facebook or shared on listservs or rare bird alerts. And people were explaining, you know, where the bird was last seen and keeping it constantly updated so that people could kind of stay in touch and and figure out where to find it.
0: Yeah, every now and then there's a celebrity bird. I remember back in, I believe it was 2013, a snowy owl showed up at National Airport and it was found during the annual Christmas bird count. And somebody who was participating in the Christmas bird count was covering that area and happened to see the snowy owl on the runway of of National Airport from Gravelly Point which is the park right next to it there were people lining up every single night like just before sunset because that's when the bird would appear and so I went over to Gravelly Point one day and there was just this line of people with scopes and cameras and everybody on the bank facing the airport and everybody with their binos and everyone's looking and looking and looking and finally someone yelled I see it and like in unison you see like 30 to 40 people all <laughs> lift their binos at the same time and look go looking for the snowy owl and so it creates quite a stir
1: and and that species you mentioned snowy owl that's always a crowd pleaser um, I will say for people who who want to find that, that it's a more sensitive species so it's harder to find information on where to find them and, and you definitely don't want to get too close to this bird Um, It's also federally protected, but they really are alluring birds. And for our Harry Potter fans out there, this is Hedwig. This is Harry Potter's owl and they are absolutely gorgeous.
0: They really are. They're very cool birds. And I think that particular year was an eruptive year for snowy owls and Eruptive. Actually, I'm going to let you describe what eruptive means because we have quite a few eruptive species this year. So it's a really great year to get into birding if you haven't done it yet. But can you go ahead and explain what eruptive is?
1: Sure. And then when people hear the word eruptive, you think of like explosion. But really, this is a different word and it's spelled I R R U P T I V E. And so what this means is that um, you have a special year where birds that are not normally found in this area show up in large numbers and and this all typically has to do with food source Um, and so they could be eruptive for different reasons. So snowy owl eruptions are directly caused by great numbers of lemmings and uh, I know there's a a group of 90s people that know what I'm talking about with lemmings from the computer game Um, but this is a small rodent that these birds feast on and feed their young in the arctic circle where they breed. And so, if you have a lot of lemmings, that means a lot of baby owls are going to grow up. S- some of them will will kind of explore further south in the winter. So you'll get more of them if it was a really good breeding year. Um, but there are a couple other species that are far more likely to be seen by people, especially people in their backyards. If you've got feeders up, or later on in the show, I'm sure you'll hear more about setting up a feeder station in your backyard. Um, there's a couple other birds that are normally in much farther north, but they rely on pine cones. And so, if there's a lack of pine cones up north, they'll come further south. There's three birds I'm referring to here. Specifically, um, that would be the pine siskin, a small finch, and you've got red breasted nuthatch. And we have its uh, cousin, the white breasted nuthatch, all year long. But the red-breasted nut hatch is a a bird that you really don't see here that often. And uh, really special this year is the evening grosbeak, a really beautiful finch with a very large bill. And um, they're absolutely gorgeous. They're golden. They don't quite look like goldfinches. I think they're even more striking than goldfinches. But if you want to do that, a quick Google search on that bird, that is a special bird to see. And I don't believe there's been as many evening gross beaks um counted as there are this year in the last 20 years or that they're saying that this is the biggest eruptive year for evening gross beaks um in 20 years. So that's been a big deal.
0: Yeah. I thought it was even more than that. I thought it was since the 1970s or maybe it maybe may that, have been. Or or that might be referring to um the sort of super flight of Finches in general and not just evening gross makes But
1: yeah. the,
0: this year is is absolutely huge. Um You know, we've got purple finches, red crossbills. These are birds that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but these are birds that typically live in Canada and don't often come this far south. But like you said, there is a change in the food source up there. But then also, I think they had a really successful breeding season this past year and so there's more of them up there than there normally are and then you pair that with the fact that now there's a shortage in food for them so you have all these birds and they don't have the food that they need to sustain themselves so they are flocking south and in numbers that we've never seen before and moving farther south than we've ever seen them move before
1: exactly so it's always going to be kind of a combination of different factors that's going to lead to this so like you said maybe high breeding numbers high offspring numbers and uh, again lack of food source is going to cause these birds to extend beyond their typical range so a lot of these birds are from the very far northern united states or or canada but also in high elevation areas kind of close to here so that would be specifically the case for a bird like the red crossbill, bill um, and they can be found uh, mostly further north but also in the real high elevation mountains of virginia and west virginia And so some of those birds we're getting out east this way um, could be coming from there.
0: I have a feeder in my backyard and I am used to getting house finches, which are here all year long. Um, But this year I got purple finches too, which look really similar to house finches. And so a lot of times, especially... Uh, especially with new birders they have a hard time knowing the difference between house finch and purple finch while well, it was really neat to look out my window and see both house finches and purple finches feeding on the same feeder then i could get pictures and you could more clearly see the difference between the two species
1: yeah and and the house finch is definitely a common misidentified bird cuz some of them can look really really bold color wise but it's always going to be easier if you can see both species of two birds that may look very similar. If you see them together, then they can stand out more.
0: Right. And I also got red-breasted nuthatch. And the first time I realized that they were in my backyard, I heard them and they sort of had this like squeaky call. Yeah. <laughs> I don't very know. Very
1: familiar. It's a very specific sound. If you, if you hear it, you'll immediately recognize this sound. It's compared to a a sneaker on a gym floor. So imagine that. And if you hear it, you'll recognize it.
0: Right. So I heard it and I thought, wait, did I really just hear what I think I heard? And I'm used to seeing or, you know, finding those birds in pine trees and I don't have pine trees in my backyard. So I thought, nah, I made that up. (laughs) I hallucinated it. That couldn't have really happened. And then I saw it fly in and I totally freaked out because here is a brand new visitor to my feeder. And I keep track of all the birds that I see visit my feeder every year. I've never had a red breasted nuthatch show up. So it was absolutely delightful to have this bird come visit and it comes back every day so now I know to look for it and every day that it comes in it's just as exciting as it was on day one because I know that after this winter season is over I might not see it again for a really long time
1: they are beautiful birds and like you said they typically stick to pine forest but when they're down here and they see that you've got this feeder set up they'll definitely stop by to say hi
0: yeah. Well, I'm hoping the evening gross beak stop by to say hi, because I have never seen an evening gross beak. And like you said, the color patterns on him are so striking. Um, they kind of remind me a little bit of cedar wax wings where they look like their wingtips have been dipped in bright colored wax. And evening gross beaks to me sort of have that same sort of bold striking pattern. So I'm really hoping to see one. I know that somebody reported one at their feeder just 13 miles from my house just the other day. And so I've got my fingers crossed that they're going to make their way this over here towards me.
1: Yeah, just keep at it and keep your hopes up and and you've got time. It can still happen. It's still mid-December. So you got plenty of time to
0: go. Another thing that makes birding so exciting is you never know what's going to show up. You never know what you're going to see. But also, you can go out on these really great adventures trying to find a bird. And you know, sometimes you think, oh, I'm just going to go over to this area where somebody saw the bird. And then something else crazy happens. <laughs> and it ends up being this whole story of chasing a bird or having something totally unexpected happen. And it becomes a heck of a story.
1: I really love getting into the stories of how I find some of these crazy, rare birds or unusual birds, um, because that's that's really a big part of it, and it's it's really about the adventure, and that's that's kind of what this podcast is is based on, right?
0: Right. Well, also, it makes it that much more exciting when you do find the bird. After that happens,
1: oh, absolutely, it feels very well earned.
0: You know, I think some of the highest elevations in Virginia are right around like Highland County. And so they get species that we don't get anywhere else, um, or they get more of species that are hard to find in other places of Virginia. So you've got things like golden eagle. Um, there were quite a few golden eagle sightings last year, and then they get um, a whole lot of hawks um, and so are other large birds of prey that are harder to find in other parts of Virginia. So that's a really neat area up there.
1: Yeah, and the, and the bird I had mentioned before, the Blackburnian warbler, and the morning warbler, really. Again, these birds typically will breed much farther north, um, kind of the border, at least for the Blackburnian. I'm not quite sure about the morning, but for Blackburnian, it's typically like central PA, central Pennsylvania, in the mountains up there, and then further north from there. But we're very lucky to have this kind of like microclimate in the mountains of Virginia and West Virginia that peak that go south from there and just jut further down into Virginia. And again, getting species there that you're not normally getting because of this kind of microclimate effect there where it's almost like a Northern climate, not just for birds, but for other animals and specifically plants as well. I mean, these birds aren't there if there's not, if they're not in the right habitat and it always starts with the plants. So you need to have the right plants, have the right insects, and you'll get the right birds. Um, so yeah, it's it's just a really unique ecosystem out in the mountains there.
0: So one of those areas that I have yet to to explore, but is on my bucket list is Reddish Knob, and that's apparently where Red Crossbills can be found pretty regularly. I know people who are obsessed with crossbills and I think it's probably because they have that funny bill and the, or the funny beak. Um, but I have yet to see one and I know I need to get up there. but I think that their food source, like you said, comes from the unique plant life that is up in that part of the mountains.
1: Yeah, that's also a bird on my list to photograph. I've seen and heard a flock fly by before. But that's not good enough for me. I want to photograph it and, and and observe its behavior. Yeah, typically there's not really any there's there's not many like good spots so that you can expect to see them. You can you can expect to see them throughout the mountains. So um, I'm, I learned something from you. Definitely, I'll look into reddish knob because these are these are generally wandering birds. They 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 kind of just tend to um, ha- like they might hang around for a little bit and then they'll go somewhere completely different the next day. And uh, so it's it can be kind of hard to track them. So it's always good to know where might there be a spot where they're more dependable. And this is definitely a bird um, to, that's all, just like you said. They have a unique bill where they the bill kind of crosses over like pincers, if you can imagine. And this is to help to pry the seeds out of a pine cone. So it's a, it's a adaptation for this bird for the things that it eats. And so it's very good at eating pine seeds out of pine cones. But I just remember seeing this bird as a very young child, maybe five years old, with my handy dandy Peterson field guide of birds of the eastern United States. And seeing this crossbill, I'm just like, whoa, there's nothing else in this book that looks like that. I can't wait to see one. And so, again, it had been years later before I ever saw any, but I'm still on the lookout to be able to to see these birds up close. So I'm right there with you on that.
0: Yeah, it's so unique looking. Let's talk about the Christmas bird count. So this year is going to be the 121st annual Christmas bird count. What is all the excitement about, Matt?
1: Okay, so, so the Christmas bird count is either the oldest or one of the oldest community science... Birding activities, but also I believe any sort of like research project. I think are ongoing. I think they're it's been ongoing for over a hundred years now, um, and anyone can kind of go out there and join a team, or even do it in their own backyard if they're within a count circle. And these are, I believe, fifteen mile radius circles, um, and just count all the different birds and all the different species they see. And all this data is all going to be compiled with help of local compilers, and it's all going to be put together and you'll be able to access the data for, and it's not, again, I, I want to say this, it's not just on Christmas Day, but this is, it's kind of a winter bird count, but it all is falls within a, like a week or two of, of Christmas. And uh, and they're, they are on separate days depending on what, what circle um, you're looking to do. Uh, but it's a really awesome way for even just beginning birders to go out there and see what's out there and to learn from experienced birders and and to get a sense for how many birds are really around us. And when you are when you are really specifically trying to find every living flying soul you can that you can stumble across, you know, it's a it's a special thing cuz mostly when I go birding I'm not necessarily out there to find every single bird of every single species, right? So this is the time when that really matters and it really shows you how many individual birds that are all around us. Um, Again, even in more urban areas.
0: And why does that matter? What happens to the data that volunteers collect during the Christmas bird count?
1: Excellent point. Now I'm sure many are aware that bird populations in general have been drastically declining over the past several years. And so really getting an idea of how many birds are out there. uh, This is kind of the best opportunity to do that, um, to really see how many different species are we getting in in each area? How many individuals are we getting as well? But in general, it does give you an idea of bird populations and and movements as well. And to cover some of these eruptive years and to to see, okay, here's a bunch of evening grosbeaks, maybe somewhere that they've never been counted before.
0: So I've heard that birds are considered an indicator species. So when people go out every year and they count the birds, the data that's collected helps researchers and ornithologists and other scientists understand what kind of changes are happening into the environment and in our climate based on what types of changes they see in the bird population. So if there's more birds or less birds, or if they're showing up in places that they typically don't show up, or if they're um, behaving in different ways that they haven't seen before, that that can all help Researchers and scientists understand what's going on uh, globally with our climate just by collecting the information that volunteers are gathering during the Christmas bird count,
1: yeah, absolutely. And um, I also want to mention that there's different types of birds. So you have generalists and you have specialists. Most of the birds that you'll see in your backyard are typically going to be generalists. These are birds that we're going to have you around. They can rely on a variety of different food sources. That's very important. Uh, to survive. And that's, again, why you may see them in your backyard or in, par- or in urban and suburban parks as well. Then you have more specialized birds that require a very specific habitat and food source. And if you start to see any of that stuff disappear, the bird will disappear as well. This is what indicator species means. And it's not just for birds. Um, another popular uh, application of that term would be to study water quality. And what kind of macroinvertebrates are you getting in your local streams? And if you're, if you're getting a great variety and, and specific types of species in there, um, you know that it's going to be good water quality with um, the right plants and oxygen levels and acidity, stuff like that. So same idea with birds, though, that some of these specialized birds, you know, the, the presence or the absence of these birds can really tell you a lot about the habitat.
0: Yeah, community science is such a great concept because anybody can participate. And I really love the story or the history behind the Christmas Bird Count because initially... Um, hunting birds on Christmas Day used to be a very popular sport and people would go out and they would shoot or kill as many birds as they possibly could in, in competition. And that was wrecking havoc on the environment. And so in response to that, other people count the birds instead. And so it eventually evolved into something completely different. And now rather than going out and hunting birds on Christmas, we're counting birds and it has a completely different effect. Now, do you have to be an experienced birder if you want to participate? in the christmas bird count
1: absolutely not it definitely helps having an experienced birder with you Um, but uh, if you go to audubon.org right now right on the front page if you scroll down a little bit on the right you'll see a page that says join the christmas bird count and if you type in your address or a town near you in there because there's like a little search function there it'll take you to the, your closest circle. And so again, these count circles, all of the counting uh, is going on within these circles. So not outside of it. So if you live within a circle, any bird you get in your, in your yard or your neighborhood or wherever um, can count uh, towards that bird count. So you don't necessarily need to go out with anybody. If you are able to properly identify, and this is important, uh, if you don't know what it is for sure, then definitely don't want to count it. But if you know what you're looking at, especially if it's something you get, you see often like the Carolina Chickadee or Morning Dove uh, or White-throated Sparrow, um, that, can, the, all, that data can all be sent towards the compiler of that circle. But you can also find out, you know, if there are teams or groups going out and if there's an opening for you to go out and join other birders. And there are definitely safety uh, COVID protocol in place um, for the count. Um, You can contact these compilers and see if there's a place where they can put you uh, to join. And then you don't even, if you're with a team, especially one with an experienced leader, you don't have to worry about keeping track of anything. You just help and and learn. And even I'm just still learning. And I want to reiterate that even the most experienced burgers are everyone's still learning. There's all there. We can't ever know everything. Uh, so that's one thing I really like to say about being a naturalist is that not only am I a teacher, um, but I'm also a student. I'm all, I, I, I need to learn more <laughs> than I teach in order to teach. And so that, that, that education is never, never done. And that's, that definitely keeps me going as a naturalist. There's always plenty more to learn. Um, so again, if you're interested in joining in the Christmas Bird Count, no matter where you are, if even if you're listening outside of Virginia, go to audubon.org and scroll down and, and click that Join Christmas Bird Count and find a count circle near you. It's, it's a lot of fun.
0: That's such a great point. I actually think participating in the Christmas Bird Count is one of the better ways to learn. And luckily, you don't have to wait until this time of year if you want to get started, because there are lots of organizations around Virginia that offer bird walks or clubs that will put on presentations and um, help you learn. And going out with somebody really is the best way to learn. I mean, certainly you can You can learn by going out by yourself. But when you're with someone, they will point out ways that you can identify birds or you know, if you're hearing something, especially if you're birding by ear, right? Because birding by ear, I think, is one of the more difficult ways to identify a bird. But if you're with someone who's experienced and you hear something, they can help you understand how they know what that sound is. And then you learn from that. So the next time you hear it, now you know what it is too.
1: Absolutely. And I'll say this. Now, while I was already birding, Last year, uh, um, by the time of the Christmas bird count, that was actually what really got me into listing on eBird. So even though it was not, again, birding wasn't new to me then, but listing pretty much was. I had an eBird account, I didn't use it. I was I was more just into just seeing them and photographing them. But then, um, because I became a co-leader uh, for several of these count circles. Um, I needed to, to make sure I kept an accurate list to send it to the compilers. And from that point on, it's gotten crazy. <laughs> so at this point, I believe I have 369 species in the world, most of them within the United States, the lower 48 of the United States. Um, and I'm constantly on the quest to keep that list growing.
0: Very good. Yeah, eBird is a, is a fantastic tool and it's run by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and it's a database and you can log all of your information all year long. Very much like the Christmas Bird Count is a community science project, eBird is like an ongoing community science project that you can enter data into any time of the year.
1: Yeah, um, and it's not even just for entering data. I highly recommend using it as a resource to find birds. Um, so no matter where you are, um, you can go to eBird and click Explore, and on that tab, um, you can see where you would put in a region. And when I say region, it literally could be county, state, or country, and find you know where the birds are being seen. Where if there's a specific bird you want to see. Or if you want to find out where there's a great habitat and park near you to find cool birds, um, you can access all that information through the Explore tab on eBird. So I highly recommend just playing with that. Go to the Explore tab, plug in different stuff, plug in different species, plug in different counties or states or regions um, and see what you can find. And it'll definitely help you on your quest to finding more cool birds.
0: That seems like a really great segue into how to get started birding for newbies who have never birded before. So what do you recommend when somebody comes to you and asks how to get started birding?
1: Um, I recommend getting a good field guide, and that can be physical or online. Um, A great free one to start with is the Merlin bird app. Now it's limited in the information you're getting. Um, It's very brief overview on each bird species that's in there. You can download actually packs for birds all over the world on the Merlin bird app. I do recommend it though. And through there, you can actually help ID birds just by brief description of the bird. So there's a place, um, there's a section of that app where you click and you describe the colors that you saw on the bird, the size of the bird, and most importantly, where and when, you saw that bird and it does a pretty good job of, of figuring out what you might've seen. Now, if, it, if that bird ended up being some vagrant from far away that is never usually here, it may not be a great tool to finding out what that bird is, but for the most part, it's pretty good. At, and that's a great resource for beginning birders because if they can only describe maybe the size of the bird and, and some colors that were on it, um, it's a great way to find out what it was. Uh, so I recommend that uh, Sibley's field guide is excellent, um, either on the app, which is a paid-for app, or the or the actual guide. Um, those are most those are all illustrations, but they they point out various field marks, and what a field mark is 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 a physical characteristic of the bird that really stands out among other birds that may look similar to it. Um, typically, these marks are going to be either somewhere on the on the head, specifically the face or on the wing or the tail or the side of the bird. Um, But uh, that's, that's definitely a a really good field guide to start with Sibley's and obviously in order to see the birds, you're usually going to have to have a pair of binoculars. So I really recommend like a decent pair of binoculars to start with. You don't need to go out there and spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on binoculars um, I personally recommend the Nikon Pro Staff 3. Um, and you can, you, can, if you can find them on sale sometimes for under $100, but they range like around like $130. Um, trust me, Nikon's not paying me anything to say this. It's just that this is the pair that I use. Um, and they're pretty good. They're very clear. And they're pretty good with even in some, even once you get into some low light. Uh, so it's a great beginning pair of binoculars to start with. And if you get more serious, then you can invest in in spotting scopes, which are pretty pricey. So I'd say to start with the binoculars and and download some field guides or buy one, um, that's a great way to start. And again, we talked about eBird. If there's a specific bird you'd love to see, or say you're flipping through your field guide and you see that you're within range of uh, let's say orange crowned warbler which is a tough bird to find by the way they, they prefer fields and their uh and forest edge habitat and they're they're really only here in this area in the winter and so if you really wanted to see that bird which is again really tough to, to find um you could go to the explore tab on ebird type in species orange crowned warbler and you can even change the uh whether it was seen in this month or this year or all time. So I would probably focus on December 2020 specifically and see where they were and find out where they were seen. Then you could see the parks that they were seen at. And hopefully there's one near you that you can go um, see them at. Or, you know, again, if you're, if you are uh, willing to go out for a challenge, go to the appropriate habitat and maybe you'll be the first to find one.
0: I like to tell people to carry a notebook or some, something where they can jot down notes because what I found when I first got started and even now, even as an experienced birder, I see something and I th- think to myself, oh, I'm going to look it up and I'm, I'll be able to find it easily. And then you look it up and all of a sudden you're presented with all of these options that all look similar and suddenly you become confused. All these different details that have you questioning what you actually saw. And so I think the best thing to do really is to start taking notes on what you're seeing immediately so that you don't get confused when you do go to look it up.
1: That's an excellent point. And you can take notes physically on, an, on a small notepad, or you can just type them in your phone. Either way works. And if you're, if you're artsy and you're pretty good at sketching, sketching is also a great way to, to additionally keep track of these notes. So if you can do a quick sketch, that can also be useful.
0: Yeah, field marks are so important. In fact, when you and I met and we were looking at that Wilson snipe, I thought we were looking at an American woodcock. And when I said that, you immediately opened up your phone to your field guide and pulled up the two birds and compared the field marks. And I remember you saying, now pay attention to the coloring on the woodcock's face. Now look at the pattern and the coloring on the snipe's face. And then I saw the difference, but otherwise they look really similar. It would be very difficult for a new birder to know the difference between those two
1: that's a great two birds to compare for this for in that context yeah because now woodcocks are slightly larger but again they they, they have this they have almost the same length bill they're both of their eyes both eyes on, on each species are set pretty high up on their head to actually give them a really excellent 360 view they have a, an incredible range of vision um, and then also the, the behaviors are very similar. Like we mentioned that little dance that they do kind of bobbing back and forth. So both birds do appear very similar. So for beginning birders to look at American woodcock and Wilson snipe, it may look very similar. So again, yeah, p- always pay attention to the field marks. And, and typically the, the bill is the thing I always pay attention to first. Always look at the bill first. And that will usually tell give you an idea of the, t- the like what family that bird is in. More so than the color, color can be very deceiving. Patterns can be very deceiving. Lots of different, totally unrelated birds may share a very similar pattern or color, but the bill is 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 usually the most important thing. I like to point out.
0: So there are there are lots of birds that look really similar. We we just mentioned two. We talked about house finch and purple finch looking really similar. Two other birds that often. Uh, trip people up when they get started that are very common that may even come to your feeder are downy woodpecker and hairy woodpecker. So it's important to have that field guide on hand, even when you're feeding birds in your backyard so that you can look up the difference.
1: Exactly. And and those those are both two tough birds, especially for beginning birders. Now, if you have them together and you have a field guide handy, then it can definitely be a lot easier because the hairy woodpecker is significantly larger and it does have a longer bill but otherwise they look they look pretty similar. Um, they even sound pretty similar. Um, so it's always gonna be useful to have both birds there.
0: What are other ways that people can attract birds to their backyard?
1: So yeah, um, let's dive into feeders. Um, and it's important to know that, uh, not to feed wildlife in almost any other situation, that includes birds outside of your own backyard. But the reason why bird feeders and feeding feeding wild birds at your home is accepted is because this is this has largely been proven to be a supplemental food source for the birds, as in they don't depend on it. If you don't have your feeders out there, they'll find food somewhere else. Um, but it's a great way to see a lot of these birds super close. Um, and you don't even necessarily have to live in a house with a backyard to have feeders, um, there's there's feeders that you can use at an apartment and put on your window, um, like a suet feeder that has like a suction cup that you can put on your window. Now I'll also say this: um, when we talk about windows, window strikes are a very, um, it's a very common way for a lot of birds to get injured or die. And so I always recommend they, there's like little decals you can get, especially the ones that have. Um, that reflect UV light and to put those around your windows and that'll protect the birds. The birds will recognize that there is something there like an object there that they may run into. uh, So they'll avoid that. But even putting feeders up on your window, the birds understand that there's a feeder there and so they'll slow down and stop on the feeder. And so that's not necessarily correlated with window strikes, but I will say that, you know, it's always good to put, if you're planning on feeding birds to put, these decals up on your windows. Um, and, and to also keep in mind that there's different feeders that are set up to attract different types of birds. So if you want a specific type of bird that you're looking for, make sure that you do the research on what that bird likes to eat and what type of feeder to get, uh, to attract that bird. So if you want hummingbirds, you're going to need a nectar feeder. Um, and, uh, in conjunction with that, sometimes you can attract cool birds like orioles. With um, they're not—they're not typically going to come for the seeds. Except if they're—if they're, if they're um, straggling behind, they may eat some seeds in the winter. But in the in the spring and summer, you can attract them. And fall, you can attract them with grape jelly and orange halves. <laughs> so they're not going to come in for the seed, but they'll come in for that. And that's pretty fun to watch them guzzling down grape jelly, or digging through an orange, being orange birds themselves.
0: They're also very striking birds with black and orange patterns or yellow, depending on if it's male or female, because there's often a very big difference between the males and the females of many different species.
1: Exactly. Um, And this is called sexual dimorphism. And that's against um, noting that the male and the female have different plumage, um, all together or sometimes it can be very subtle like with the pileated woodpecker it's only about like the color of their their cheek patch uh separates them but and for downy and hairy woodpecker the males will have a small little red patch in the back and the females are all black and white um but some look vastly different Um, the baltimore oriole is is fairly uh different because the the male baltimore oriole is striking deep black and orange where the female is a lot more subtle. And the reason being is that the males are trying to attract the female, right? And the females are, their job is to protect that nest. So if they looked super striking and they were at a nest, you know, sitting on the eggs or feeding the chicks and they looked like really obvious that could attract some predators. So typically she's going to be well camouflaged in with the nest and so that's one reason, again, why the females may not always be um, as striking looking as the males.
0: Are there other ways that people can attract birds to their backyard besides feeding?
1: That's a great point. And, and a lot of people would recommend, especially other nationalists, would recommend, if you're able to, to put in the appropriate plants that may attract insects or produce fruit uh, that would attract birds. And so that's the more organic, shall we say, way of attracting birds to your yard is to again have the appropriate habitat and we talked about that earlier how it all starts with plants everything every all life here well it starts with the sun obviously but when we're talking about habitat it really is the substrate that the plants are going to be growing in as in like the, the soil and the plants themselves and that's from there on is 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 how the habitat will form and how the ecosystem will form, so you'll get the right insects and birds and, and everything else. Um, and so I really love serviceberry. You mentioned cedar waxwings earlier. They're beautiful, beautiful birds. They are around all year. Um, serviceberry typically will um, will fruit in, in May, but serviceberry is perfect for attracting cedar waxwings, who are mostly fruit eaters. And there is nothing like looking outside at a serviceberry bush and seeing it just loaded with cedar waxwings, gorging themselves on this beautiful red berries, feeding other waxwings with the berries. And you can see this all in your backyard if you're lucky. Um, So that's one plant that I highly recommend.
0: I'm going to have to add that to my backyard now. And I already have quite a few native plants planted in my backyard, specifically to attract birds and other wildlife and native insects as well. But I don't have service berry yet. So I was trying to think of what I'm going to add this upcoming spring. I think I'm going to put that on my list. Yeah,
1: that sounds good. And and you mentioned native plants. This is very important because, you know, of course, uh, everybody's attracted to exotic plants. Um, Everybody likes kind of like a tropical look. Um, but I will tell you that that is one way to to keep the birds away. It's not going to attract insects for their life cycle. And so you're not going to get birds that are going to come over there really. Um, and you also want to prevent birds from, if, if there's say a, if there's a fruiting plant that birds may eat, you don't want them to go spreading the seed somewhere else and keeping invasive plants going. So I really have to insist it's, it's, it's really best to invest in, native plants. Um, and again, see what they do, see what they attract. Uh, they could also attract beautiful butterflies. You could have beautiful bu- uh, different species of of butterflies in your yard because of the native plants that you chose.
0: If somebody is interested in learning more about birds, especially getting involved and maybe going on some bird walks, uh, let's touch real quickly on some organizations or resources for people in Virginia.
1: Sure. Well, I have to say, obviously, since I work for Nova Parks, we are a great resource. And while we don't offer in-person programming at this time, um, when that does finally open up again, I highly recommend checking out some of the programs that we have to offer. And a lot of that is run by me as the roving naturalist. Um, So I I definitely recommend that. Uh, You can easily get in touch to what the Audubon Society has Uh, various um, kind of hubs throughout the country. And so in Northern Virginia specifically, we have the Audubon of Northern Virginia and Audubon employees are are more than happy and volunteers are more than happy to answer uh, questions you have and help you get started. Um, so they'd be a great resource as well.
0: And there are several other organizations and clubs. The Virginia Society of Ornithology does bird walks and, f- and field trips. You know, a lot of these groups do bird walks it locally where they're located, but then often they will schedule field trips. Like, you know, I'm up here in Northern Virginia. I might take a field trip to Great Dismal Swamp or to Chincoteague or um, out to the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so there are lots of opportunities for field trips after COVID, of course. Most, most of these groups have suspended their their walks and their field trips, but that's an organization that does them. Um, can you think of others?
1: Yeah, well um leading into that as well um the Virginia Ornithological Society uh they would run different bird clubs depending on where in where in Virginia you live it may be good to reach out and find whatever bird club chapter is near you. And so it's again it's it's it would be organized the, the organization would be Virginia Ornithological Society, but again, the bird clubs would be run by board members and volunteers. And if you would jo- if you join the bird club near you, then you you have access to a bunch of people with great minds and lots of experience. And they typically would organize said field trips and even participate in the Christmas bird count as well. So. So, I really um, advocate for that. So, find your local bird club and, and join. It doesn't matter how much experience you have, anyone can join. And it's very cheap. I think it's like, might be like, get to, to join the Virginia Ornithological Society first and then join the bird club. But I think it might be a combined like 30 bucks or something like that.
0: Yeah, the Northern Virginia Bird Club is like $10 a year or something like that. I mean, and and of course, they welcome donations, but at a minimum, it's very cheap to join. And I think another thing uh, that's worth pointing out is that some of these organizations, while they all love birds and want to share the love of birds, sometimes their mission is a little bit different. So like, for example, the Northern Virginia Bird Club is specifically about organizing walks and field trips, whereas the Audubon Society might be more focused on conservation as a whole and conserving bird habitats and um, providing educational opportunities to the community. And so even though they all are focused on birds, they might have different, um, different objectives as, a, as an organization. So you can choose an organization based on what your objective is um, or how involved you want to be um, or, or join them all like me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> join all of the point. bird
0: organizations and, and have fun with all of them. So something is interesting about birding that I have noticed lately, when I first got into birding, and that was probably eight, eight or nine years ago, I was almost always the youngest birder in the group when I went on field trips, or I went to club meetings or on bird walks. And when I say I'm the youngest, I usually mean I was the youngest person by 20 or 30 years. And that has really changed recently. That is no longer the case. In fact, uh, when I was on the wild, literal wild Goose chase of finding the barnacle goose, and there were all kinds of people around me who are also looking to see the bird. I was the oldest person, um, both to my delight and and also was a little scary. <laughs> I'm not used to being the oldest person. Um, but birding has really changed. The demographics of birding have really changed. Have you noticed this too?
1: I have, and I, I'm really pleased to see this. Um, and you know, birding is for everybody. Um but obviously when you see a certain demographic alone birding, then it you know, may not feel as inclusive. Um, so yeah, typically uh, you're going to see a lot of old guys out there birding, um, but it really is for everybody. Um, and, and there are plenty of organizations to reach out to, no matter who you are, what your background is, um, to really get started and, and to feel welcome. One of these groups I highly recommend is the Idea Birders of Maryland and D.C. And I know that's outside of Virginia, but hopefully there'll be a similar kind of group um, for Virginia very soon. But if you live within, if you live close to there, it's, it's, I'd really recommend joining it. It's a very inclusive environment for, for people of all backgrounds um, and experience to join and learn and to feel welcome and included. And, and like you said, I mean, I am starting to see a shift in who's out there birding, um, especially with age. And I've noticed that some of the, some of the most tenacious birders um, I have seen are young birders.
0: There's been a big push for Audubon, especially to start college chapters, uh, you know, bird clubs and and chapters of Audubon on college campuses. So that has really increased. I think the number of ornithology classes that are being offered at colleges and universities has increased. So that I think probably has a lot to do with the age demographic. But also, there's other types of diversity that we're seeing out there too, which is wonderful. Um, I'm seeing women take on more leadership roles uh, in some of these organizations. There is a LG. LGBTQ group uh, of birders. In fact, um, I think LGBT now stands for "Let's Go Birding Together," which is really, <laughs> really fun. Um, there was a wonderful um, social media movement just recently called Black Birders Week that got started, and to see the number of folks uh, who are out there representing uh, the Black community, um, who are some many of them are scientists, and other others are are hobbyists, but to see all of them out on social media sharing their experiences and also talking about their stories and what it's like uh, to be a member of that community and to be in the outdoors because the outdoors is not always a welcoming place for certain people. And I think that's important for all of us to understand so that we can help change that.
1: 100%. And and as a white man myself, it it is you know, you take it for granted going out to some of these places, especially in rural areas, um, where not everybody feels welcome or comfortable, and you and it really does open your eyes at some what some of these experiences must you know must be like. And there's no way that I can understand personally, but you know, I think I think just having more of a support group for everybody so that everybody feels like everybody feels welcome, I think is super important. I actually co-led a blackbirders Walk through Nova parks at one of our parks, Upton Hill regional park with one of the founders of black burgers week, Tykey James. So Tykey James and Orieta Estrada Chaconis have actually come together, um, and created an amazing scholarship opportunity called the black and Latinx burgers scholarship. Um, because, you know, getting into the environmental field, um, is definitely you know, easier for people with you know, that, that have uh, the ability to work part-time jobs uh, that don't pay much or to, um, to volunteer a lot of time. That's not always the case for everybody. And so um, lately there's definitely been a push to, to, to make these opportunities accessible for everyone. Um, and so I'd really love to see an increase in diversity uh, in green jobs.
0: Matt, since you're the Nova Park's Roving Naturalist, what are some cool places that you can recommend?
1: Um, well, it definitely depends on on where you live, but there's uh, a few parks that really stand out to me. Um, if you live really close to the D.C. area, I recommend checking out Potomac Overlook Regional Park. That's actually where I'm based out of. Um, and there's a really cool nature center um, with tons of, of native animals, including um, non-releasable uh, birds of prey that we have. So to see them up close is really unique, uh, not to mention um, various trails. Um, and it's all very wooded um, along the uh, George Washington National Parkway. So that one's cool if you're, if you're kind of within Arlington and D.C. area. Um, Algonquian Regional Park is, is excellent. With a variety of habitat uh, a little bit further upstream on the Potomac River in Sterling. Um, Bull Run is amazing, especially for Bull Run Regional Park is especially amazing for seeing the Virginia bluebells in April, but also for red-headed woodpecker. Uh, now a lot of woodpeckers have red on their head, but there's only one called the red-headed woodpecker, and it's its whole head is red. It's a beautiful, beautiful, striking red, black, and white bird. Most woodpeckers have some striping, but these are pretty solid colors, red, black, and white on the red-headed woodpecker. Bull Run Regional Park is a great place to see them, especially along that uh, Bluebell Trail. And um, one of my favorites is Pohick Bay Regional Park, and it's probably our most unique because it has a stretch of freshwater tidal marsh that really brings in a great diversity of, of wildlife of all kinds, especially birds. Um, so wild rice is a really productive, uh, warm, uh, warm season grass that produces a ton of seeds per plant. And that can really help aid a lot of migratory birds on their journey South, just like the Sora, um, that we had mentioned. So Sora really does rely on that wild marsh on its way South. And you can rent, um, paddle boards and kayaks and canoes at Pohik Bay and explore the marsh for yourself. Or join me um, for one of my guided uh, paddle tours. I do different themed paddle tours out of several of our parks, um, including Pohick Bay. um, And that would be exploring the marsh or to to see sunset. Um, I even offer a a nighttime full moon tour there. Uh, So hopefully we'll open that stuff up back up in the spring. Um, But those are some parks I highly recommend checking out within the Nova Park system.
0: My listeners who uh, tune in every other week when new episodes come out should remember that we just recently did an episode with Scott Stroh, who's the executive director of Gunston Hall, about the Mason Neck Peninsula and Pohick Bay Regional Park is one of the parks that we talked about on Mason Neck Peninsula. And we talked about how great the birding is in that location, too. And even Scott said that one of his favorite things to do is to get into a kayak and paddle out on the water into these, like, seclusive coves that you can get to from from Pohick. And those are just amazing spots because once you get back into those coves, first of all, you'll forget that you're anywhere in Northern Virginia. I mean, you feel like you're out in a jungle almost. But it's not uncommon to see bald eagles flying over your head Um, and they nest there. So what's really neat is when you see the adults and the juveniles together. And then also Osprey and um, so many shorebirds. And so it's really it's such a great place to see birds from the water.
1: Absolutely. And, and that is one of the best places to see bald eagles in great numbers. So not only do they nest there, but um, they chase the shad uh, and um, the waterfowl there. Uh, if it's a really icy winter and, and much of the water's surface is frozen over, it compacts the waterfowl into smaller areas. And eagles being uh, very intelligent and lazy birds, not to mention not quite having the ability to fish that osprey do, um, will come scoop down and grab waterfowl. And that can be alarming to some because, you know, the wa- ducks are obviously very cute. So it's it can be kind of graphic, <laughs> but it's a really unique opportunity to, to see this happen. So if, if it happens to be in conditions where it's cold enough to sustain some of the water freezing over, um, especially in February head down to Poick Bay and, and see uh, for yourself. I mean, it's a really unique opportunity. And that's I think that's one of the coolest phenomenon that any of our parks has to offer.
0: Right. And great blue heron are very common and, and other herons. Um, they
1: also nest there. Great blue herons nest there. There's a yes. rookery of great blue herons to see.
0: That's also really neat. And, um, you know, just recently I had an experience where I was kayaking there and there was a big raft, which for people who don't know, a raft is a term to describe a lot of waterfowl that swim or group together on the water. There was a big raft of American coots, probably over a hundred to 120, somewhere in that number. And my kayak was starting to float you know, close towards them. And so I just sort of pulled my paddle in and laid back and let the water carry me. And it carried me right up to this raft of American coots. And I sort of floated along next to them for a while before I got too close for their comfort. And then they all just took off. And I got this great video of all of them taking off into the air at once. And it was really neat. But they sort of have the same reaction when there's an eagle nearby. So I was paddling out near an island and an eagle um, was perched up at the top of a tree and it took off. And you can can tell when the coots know that there's an eagle in the area because they sort of all freak out at once uh, but it's really neat to see that because you just it'll be silent and then all of a sudden there's this big disturbance and it almost sounds like a boat it sounds like a motor or something taking off and then you realize it's actually the flapping of all of the wings
1: it's crazy how loud that is when there's enough of those wings flapping
0: <laughs> that's right Matt, let's wrap things up here. I I usually have very specific questions that I ask every guest at the end of a show, but today I'm going to switch it up a little bit and I'm going to ask you something different than I ask my other guests. So the first thing I'm going to ask you is what is your nemesis, bird?
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I definitely have many, um, but I will say one that really sticks out is, uh, is the golden-winged warbler. Now this is a bird that's pretty much expected through migration, um, mo- pretty much exclusively in the spring but also in the fall. Um, and you can pretty much find this bird in good habitat. Not, It's not as common as some of the other warblers we get coming through, um, but I was determined to find one. And it was definitely a top bird on, uh, it was my number one bird actually. On that trip, I went out to the uh, West Virginia and Virginia mountains. Um, I got there right at sunrise, but I might have been too early because the insects may not have been out at that time. And I had to move on and I never got it. And that was really tough uh, pill to swallow that after so much effort. That's one warbler I didn't get. So that's going to be my number one priority this coming spring.
0: I feel like for some reason warblers tend to be nemesis birds in general. Have you noticed that?
1: Yeah, and again, the fact that they're so beautiful and only he, and most of them are only here for such a short time makes them easy to put on the nemesis list.
0: For the longest time, one of my nemesis birds was cerulean warbler. And I really wanted to see one so badly because they're lightish blue and white streaked um, body and so pretty. And I would always hear them. Everywhere I went, I heard them, but I could never see them. And, And part of that is because they live up in the very tops of the canopies. So if you're in the forest, especially an old growth forest, and you're looking straight up, it is very difficult to see a small bird way at the top of the trees. You might see movement, but You don't really get to see the bird. And so I really wanted a photo of it. And year after year, I never could get my eyes on one. Like I never got a good look at one. And it was driving me absolutely crazy. And then finally this last spring up in Shenandoah National Park, and I heard them and I ended up having to go off trail and follow follow the song until I got to a spot where I just stood still for a long time. And finally one came down sort of low enough where I could get a good look at it and I could follow it with my bino. Um, and just be able to stand there and see it for like 20 minutes, and that feeling that you get when you finally get your eyes on something that you've been hoping to see for so long just can't even be described.
1: I can I? I can identify with you on that 100. It's it's it really is a rush, and for those of you who are thinking of getting started or just getting started, once you really start to get a sense of 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 which birds are really more difficult to get. Once you do see those birds for the first time, it's it's really hard to describe that feeling, but it really is a rush and it's worth it. Um, it's worth all that time and effort you put into finding them.
0: What species do you most hope to add to your life list?
1: Yeah, and so um, again, we're talking about kind of these, the, the mountain habitats. So definitely out towards Shenandoah, um, a ruffed grouse. Yeah, so ruffed grouse would be a bird that I really hope to add to my list this coming spring. Um, they're there year-round, but they're really secretive and, and difficult to find. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they're quails. I believe they are. In, they are quails, or they're at least related to quails. It's the only one that we have here um, in Virginia, other than the bob, the northern bobwhite, which is also an indicator species and is largely disappearing by the way. Um, but I have seen them before. So I, uh, so rough grouse is, is on there for me. And I'm, I'm really hoping to see, or at least hear the drumming Mm -hmm. of a really cool, the males give a really cool drumming sound during courtship. Um, so I'll be out in Shenandoah in spring, uh, looking for them.
0: I was just going to ask uh, if you had heard one, I guess not because it, it would have been on your life list, because I will point out, you don't have to see a bird to add it to your life list. If you can positively hear it and identify it that way, you can add it to your life list too. And actually a really good place that you might want to look is on the trail going up to Stony Man Summit in Shenandoah. There's a resonant one right there because people report it over and over and over again. But I heard it when I was hiking up that trail. And at first I thought somebody it was like blasting music from a car from somewhere, you, you know, like you hear it, that. yeah. You because that's what it sounds like, it sounds like a bass, like the boom, 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 boom. And like, I stopped and I'm looking around and I'm thinking who is blasting music in the middle of the forest? Like, what is wrong with people? And I was like having this little internal rant, right? And then all of a sudden it occurred to me that maybe it's not music, maybe it's something else. And then I remembered that um, this bird had that type of call. And I have a field guide on my phone, which is really handy. And I opened it up. And um, one thing that's really nice about a field guide on your phone, as opposed to having the book, is that oftentimes you can play calls and other sounds that birds make. And so I was able to play uh, what a rough grass sounds like you could hear that reverberating sound that the males make during mating season. And so I knew instantly that that's what I had heard. Um, so that's super neat. It's really cool. I wish you awesome. the best of luck in finding the Thank rough grass. Thank you. I will
1: I will definitely use that tip. So thanks a lot. I, I love Shenandoah National Park. So any excuse I can get out there. Especially for birding, I'm all aboard. So I'm going to look for that. I'm going to look for that resident grouse.
0: Yeah. Well, Matt, this has been a pleasure talking about birds and birding in Virginia. Um, It is such a cool outdoor activity. I hope that more people get involved in it. And I really appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to see you out there in the field again.
0: If you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us. Rate, review, and share with a friend. Follow us on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you may listen to podcasts. Virginia Outdoor Adventures is hosted by me, Jessica Bowser. Cover art illustrated by Olivia Smith. Editing by Alexander Valencia. Executive production by Steph Garrett. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us on our website, virginiaoutdooradventures.com. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, adventure on.